It seemed like such a simple task. You wouldn't think it would be that difficult. It's not a task I haven't done before. It's not a task Christy hasn't tackled either. The task was very simple. And yet, for whatever reason, it proved difficult. The task at hand was cleaning the windows. We had these windows in our home that face uh, kind of to the southwest and the deck on our home uh, is on the outside of those windows, so clean the outsides easy and clean the insides easy. And as we were cleaning the windows, something occurred to me, and I saw something like I hadn't seen it before, that we're going to talk about that today. I want to ask you to stand with me. I know you just sat down and got comfortable, but go ahead and As we consider, as a part of our sermon series called Bedrock, we've been starting each sermon with a reading from God's Word. Today is from Genesis chapter 3. Please read along with me, verses 1 through 4. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. The word of God, you may be seated. The first thing as we open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 that we see, when we remember we've been in in this series for several weeks now, and it's all basic truths found in the first few chapters of Genesis. And so up to this point, it has been a perfect world, a perfect creation. After every single part of the created order, from the universe to the atmosphere to the earth and the seas and all the creatures that fill all of those elements, God said it was good. After Creating Adam and creating Eve, it was good. But now we come to the part where the perfect world changes drastically. And here we see sin started with Satan. Satan brings it into the world. Now he's taking the form of a serpent. Why did he take that form? Well, Satan being a fallen angel, angels can take on many different forms, and he certainly does throughout the story of Scripture. Here in the garden, he takes the form of a serpent. He will be known as that ancient serpent all throughout the rest of Scripture. But he brings sin into the world. Now, he couldn't force sin. We're going to talk about sin is a choice. He couldn't force that choice, but he offered the opportunity for sin. He brings it first to Eve, and then she offers it to her husband, Adam. And he intends, by the way, to keep sin going. And if I take an honest look around at the world we live in, scroll through my news app, watch television for 30 seconds, turn to any of the news channels, I would say he's doing a pretty effective job. It started in Genesis 3, but he wasn't done there. But we can learn some things from Genesis chapter 3 if we think about it. So, I mean, we think about, help us think through some strategies for spreading sin. Satan's really good at these. Uh, The first thing that he does is to create doubt. In verse 1, you'll see right there in the text, and 
if you aren't in the text, I hope that you'll get in the text because I, I want you to fact check the preacher in real time. Some of you consider that your spiritual gift. So, you know, whatever. But, but fact check me. Don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. Okay. Verse one, did God really say? Now, the, 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 say, say the enemy's tactic here is so smooth. And we need to understand that he is absolutely very good at what he does. He doesn't say, I know God said this, but I want you to do this. What he starts with is, did God really say? It's so effective. It it just puts that seed of doubt in our minds and in our hearts to question what God really said. Every week... I preach from this book. Usually at the beginning of service, I'll tell you to take a book. There's a reason for that. It's not just because we like handing out cases and cases of Bibles. We have a television ministry called Know Your Bible. Uh, We believe it is so crucial to know what God really says. You see, we think the serpent back in the garden asking a question, did God really say? He said that wasn't just for Genesis chapter 3. That happens in our world every day, right now. I've been studying a lot on cultural issues. And there's a lot of really intelligent people who write big, thick books that are not the Bible and who effectively make the same argument. Did God really say... I mean, I know it says it here, but I can't mean it here because that's not, that doesn't feel good to me. I don't like that. It, it just can't be that God really said. So my caution to you, as it would be to Adam and Eve, is to remember what God really says. Because what everyone else says matters very little. Knowing what God said is, is crucial. Now, if, if we take a look back, we can see what God really said, because it, these words were written down to us. So look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Okay? This is the truth, okay? This is what God really said. It actually says it. If Eve had a, a Bible, she could have just looked back a couple verses. The Lord commanded the man, verse 16, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the truth of what he said. Now, we look at verse 3 of of, uh, Genesis 3. This is what Eve said that God said. Eve said that God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, if you're paying attention, you realize that chapter 2, verse 16, 17 is different. That what God said is different than what Eve said that God said. And this is a really important point. Especially when listen to guys like me. Because we're professionals at telling you what God said. And, And it's easy to go, well, Toby said that God said. But it's really important for you to go back, to read it for yourself, and to know what God really says. Because Eve here interprets God's word. And she, you'll see, it's a little bit different. And then we look at verses 4 and 5. So we go from the truth of what God said to the interpretation, what Eve said God said, 
And now, in verse five, four, 4 and 5, we get the lie. The serpent said, you will not surely die, lie 1. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Lie 2, knowing good and evil. All right. God takes, uh, Satan takes what God says and uses Eve's interpretation. He's planted doubt. Now he's working on her interpretation and he leads her to something very much different than what God really said. So the first thing that Satan does is spread doubt. And how he does that is by questioning what God really says. The second thing he does is he makes it attractive. Verse 6, we're back in chapter 3. He says... So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The second thing Satan does is to make sin attractive. And sin, by its nature, is attractive. It is designed to appeal to you in the very same ways Satan used to appeal to Eve. He has the same old marketing plan for sin. It's an old marketing plan, but it is highly effective. If you care for a New Testament perspective, I'll I'll encourage you to go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It's on page 1,304. It's a small book, so if you don't know exactly where it is, don't feel a judgment. Just go to page 1,304. The Apostle of Love describes this marketing plan for sin. Verse two, oh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, all of it, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes... And the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So it's an old plan, but it's an effective plan. He tempted Eve that way. He tempted Jesus that way in Matthew chapter 4. And he tempts us that way. Uh, One translation says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if it's a one of those three or a combination of all three, he will use whatever it takes. But they all come back to those three ways of making sin attractive. You wouldn't think sin would be attractive if Eve only knew the trouble that her decision to give it to Adam. And Adam knew the trouble that his decision would bring into the world. And the suffering and the the anguish and the pain and the separation and the death that would follow that single decision, you wouldn't think it would be appealing at all. Which tells us something about the nature of our enemy. That he's very good at what he does. And the last strategy is... He wants sin to spread, so he, he encourages us to share it. Chapter six, um, chap, chapter three, rather, of Genesis three, verse six. So when the woman saw that it was good, she took some of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So the first strategy is to doubt God. The second is to make it really attractive. And the third is the power of groups. Uh, 
Never underestimate the ability of sin to spread in groups. It spreads really fast. It's the worst virus we've ever known. It is crazy fast. And this reminds us why it's so, so very important that we pay attention to our relationships. Every person you interact with, a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, someone you're engaged to, someone you're intending to marry, you should pay very close attention to that person and what their view of God is and what their view of sin is because it's, it's easy to spread things quickly in, in groups. I remember when I was a youth minister, I had someone tell me, and I use this line often, about your friends. He'd say, you show me who you run with and I'll show you who you are. We've got to pay attention to our friends. We've got to pay attention to all the people in our lives, co-workers and family and neighbors and everybody. Because sin spreads one person to another. That's how the first sin started. That's how sin continues today. So it, it starts with Satan. The second bedrock truth we learn is this. Sin always, and I mean always, has consequences. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Genesis chapter 3. This is when God, this is later in chapter 3. And this is... Verse 11. Now the first part is interesting because they hear God and for the first time, mankind hides from God. It's one of the consequences of sin. We begin to hide from him. We begin to ignore him. We close our Bibles. Stop going to church. We stop listening. And they hide from God, which is... Not a real good strategy if you're playing hide-and-seek, if you ask me. But anyway, they're hiding from God. And God says, where are you? Not because he doesn't know where they are, but he's, he's saying something's changed. And Adam says this, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And these next four words are heartbreaking. And I was afraid. Because I was naked. Now, he's not just talking about physical nakedness, but he's also talking about his spiritual nakedness. And I hid myself. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And it begins to unravel from here. You see, God loved Adam and Eve. He loves you and I. He wanted to bless them. He gave them utopia on earth. He gave them the perfect world. He gave them everything they could want or need. The only thing he asked was their trust and their obedience. And they had broken that. And they had severed the relationship. It had changed everything. And they chose sin. And so, we go to verses, verse 7 and following, and follow along here, because this is interesting. Starting verse 7, we see a whole lot of consequences that come from the very first sin. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. So the first consequence of sin is very simply shame. Most people drift from God. It's because they feel ashamed of their sin. Let's look at verse 8. And that what I just read, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. The second consequence of sin is hiding from God, which is what we shouldn't do, but something within our nature knows that God can't have sin in his presence. And so when we sin, we hide it. We try to hide it from others. We think we can hide it from God, but we are as effective as they were at hiding from God. Keep reading, verses 9 and 10. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is consequence number three, fear. You understand that Adam and Eve did not live in a world where they had to be afraid of anything? You can't even imagine that, can you? You have fear all the time. You walk around with fear. You think about fear. You you, you can't even relax. You're so wound up with fear. You try to go to bed at night, and all you can think of things is things to be afraid of. We live in a world so permeated with fear, it's hard to even imagine a world where we didn't have to be afraid. But that's one of the things that sin brought. Keep reading verse 11. Have you, he said, have you, uh, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the the serpent deceived me and I ate. And, And we see blame bring itself into the situation for the first time ever. We see the first example of marital strife here in Genesis chapter 3. A man blaming his wife. Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. And he just throws all of her under the bus, doesn't he? That's what sin does. Makes us blame other people. Makes us not take responsibility for our own choices Keep reading, verse 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. And all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. We'll come back to that. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, you shall des- your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I was talking to my sweet wife about this scripture. She said, if there is the ability to meet characters of scripture in heaven, there's going to be a long line of women who have a conversation with Eve. And I think she's right. Keep reading verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust." 
and to dust you shall return. Whole lot of punishment that comes as a result. You know, you need to understand that that's not... It has to do with the nature of God, you see. God's perfect and holy. He can't have sin in His presence at all. And so when God encounters sin, the right response from God is perfect wrath. Now I say wrath and some people take that harshly, but you need to understand it's perfect wrath. Because God's perfectly just. He proclaims the right necessary punishment at sin. And notice he holds each one responsible. He doesn't blame everybody. And there are some people that believe in a doctrine that we call original sin that says you effectively are guilty. You share in the guilt of Adam's sin by virtue of being human, which is not a biblical thing at all. God holds each person responsible for their sin. And there is punishment in the short term, perhaps, definitely in the long term. And we'll see the rest of those results to the rest of Scripture. And finally, the worst... Verses 22 and following. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever, therefore the Lord sent him from the garden to... sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Number six is separation. The worst lie you can ever believe is that sin doesn't hurt anybody. Satan's very effective at marketing your sin to you and also convincing you. It's really just a small thing. It's not as bad as that guy's sin. It's really not that bad if nobody knows about it. Why do we need to talk about it? It's really not that big a deal. But you need to understand, if you read Genesis chapter 6, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3, that God takes sin seriously. He always has. It's in his nature. He can do no less. And so this is why, in the title of the message, God hates sin. You and I live in a world that's so permeated by sin that we're, we're sort of used to it. Sin is to us like water is to a fish. We don't know any different. It's hard to imagine a world without it. But sin violates his holy nature. Revelation tells us a picture of God's throne room, that there are angels that surround God, and their only job since the beginning of forever, I guess, to the, to the ending of forever, their eternal job is to surround God and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You and I can't fathom that. Not since the garden. And so sin is serious, no, no, no matter how small, no matter how private, no matter how long ago, your sin is very serious. 
Uh, I want to give you an example. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 51 is where we'll be. Now, if you don't know, this psalm was written when a man after God's own heart did something to break God's heart. Did something to break Uriah's heart. Did something to break so many hearts. And we could get into how David got here, but, but what I really want to look at is David's response after he had been confronted by Nathan the prophet of how deeply his sin personally offended and violated his God. And when Nathan pointed that out, David finally came to the right conclusion and he wrote Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against, well... Let me stop. Uh, David's sin was committing adultery with Bathsheba. But, but I want to turn Psalm 51 on you for a minute. I want to ask you to consider your sin. I don't know what it is. Big? Did everyone know about it? Did it wreck your family and your relationships? Did it change the trajectory of your life? Possibly. Or was it small and private and hidden? I, I want you just to close your eyes. That's what I want you to do. Some of you are already there. Thank you. Psalm 51. I, want you, I really want you to close your eyes, because it's going to be awkward if you're looking at me. I want you to ponder your sin. And just hang there for a minute. Keep your eyes closed. And I want to finish reading verse 4. Keep your eyes closed. Against you, God, against you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You can open them. I, I don't mean to just weigh you down, but I, I want you to feel the heaviness of sin. Is we take it far too lightly in our world. And, and, and in order to bring us to the hope of the gospel, we need to understand the weight of our sin. You see, sin at its heart is against him. It's a distrusting of him. 
It's a breaking of covenant with him. It's a turning our back on him. Whatever it was, I want to just ask you, can you be honest about your sin? Can you take ownership of your sin? It's necessary. When you understand that your sin hurts you and it causes you to suffer in ways God didn't intend you to suffer, it, it separates you. Every sin is, is one step farther away from God. And, and then when you begin to feel the weight of your sin, now multiply that by eight, nearly eight billion people, and you understand the heaviness of what we remember every single Sunday. And our world lives with so much of it. And we've strayed so far from God that when something horrific happens, it's on my heart, it's on all of yours, the Nashville shooting. A transgender assassin walks into an elementary school And here's where Satan gets really effective. Because we see the result of one sinner's unspeakable, unthinkable sin. And some people turn to God and say, that's your fault. That's you. And that wasn't God's will. That's not God's will. It's the result of sin over sin over sin over sin compounding to the point where we suffer so much we don't even know why. And the worst is we blame our creator who loves us. This is why God hates sin so much. Because it hurts us. Sin has always been a losing proposition. From the beginning all the way to the end. It's always hurt us. We lost utopia. We lost our relationship with God. We lost the presence of God. We live in the world that we live in now. That's the result of sin. That's why God hates it. Because it does us no good. I understand I'm putting a lot on you this morning. I don't apologize. Because I need you here to bring you to the next point. God hates sin with everything he has, but he loves you with everything he has. How does a holy creator, a perfect God, a righteous, eternal father, love, as the old hymn said, one such a worm as I 
how does he love me in spite of my sin? I told you about cleaning the windows. You try to clean the windows and they seem clean, right? And you clean them and then, and then the sun hits the windows. And the way our house is, is situated, there's a certain point in the day when that sun hits just every part of the window. Now, we cleaned both sides several times, got it as clean as it could be. Looked like you could walk through it, but when the sun hit the windows, you realize they weren't clean at all. It's a metaphor. You see, in God's perfect light, (laughs) all have sinned. Romans 3.23. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's a very depressing verse. There's no one whose window is perfectly clean. Oh, there's some who look pretty good. But no one's window is perfectly clean. But to understand the, the fullness of the gospel, you need to read the next verse of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, says all sin. All fall short. Every one of us has a stain in our window. And exposed in the light of God, none of us can stand. And, verse 24, are justified by His grace. How do we get that grace? God cleaned off all of the stains perfectly. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Bad news. Your window's dirty and dirtier than you think. And your sin is heavy in the presence of God. And even worse news, you can't do a thing about it. The prophet Isaiah said, Your righteousness is like filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. But here's the good news. You don't have to use your filthy rags to try to clean that window. God sent His own Son who spilled His blood. And His blood leaves you whiter than snow. That's the only hope. Our sin is heavy and God hates it, but he doesn't hate you. That's the point. This is how God can hate sin and love you. Look at the most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3. Now, most people know just verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus' window was perfectly clean, and he certainly could have come into the world to condemn us. But look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How can God hate our sin and love us? And the answer is Jesus Christ. 
That's why Jesus died on the cross. We talked this morning about all the sacrifices made under the law. All of the animals that died because of our sin. All of the blood that was shed for our sin. None of those could atone for sin. It was only when God sent his son, when that perfect sacrifice and perfect blood from the perfect lamb of God could wipe away our sin. So, God hates sin, but he loves you. And that's my, my thought on the seriousness of sin. So, now I just want to, to tell you all of that very plainly. God hates your sin. He doesn't want you to be a part of it anymore. He doesn't want you to hide. He wants you to repent. He wants you to turn away from it and turn back to Him. You say, I, I want to, but I can't. And that's where Satan wants you to believe. But God sent His Son to pay for your sin that you might have redemption through His blood through his sacrifice at the cross. He sent his own son to crush the sinful serpent. I have one other part from Genesis chapter 3, and then we'll be done. Genesis chapter 3, we, we move past something that I want to go back to. It's in verse 15. After they have sinned, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking here about Jesus. In the first sin, he's already got a plan to handle it. And then look at verse 20 for the second clue. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And look at verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You may have skipped over that part, but remember Adam and Eve were kind of using fig leaves in all the right places to cover themselves? I don't know if you've ever tried this before. I have not. Uh, But it doesn't work very well. And it's probably real uncomfortable. But when God was done punishing all their sin... A sacrifice was made. That's how you get an animal skin. And blood was shed. So that they could be covered. And God was in that sacrifice. Pointing to another sacrifice. That he would make. And so my offering this morning to you. Is to give you the hope of the gospel. To turn to Jesus. He is the only hope for your sin. The Savior. And if you're ready to turn away from sin and turn toward Him, repent of sin and be immersed in the waters and be washed in the blood, we can do that this morning. Or maybe you've in Christ, but you're stuck in sin. You've wandered away and you need to repent. You'd like to have our elders pray with you or this congregation pray with you. We'd be glad to help you in that way. If you have a need this morning, whatever it might be, a spirit of a spiritual nature... I invite you as we sing this next song to head to the back, speak with one of our shepherds, and we'll help you how you can. May we not forget that God hates sin, but that he loves you. Let's stand and sing.